0: Today's sponsor is Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media.
0: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who thinks booing Mike Pence is too polite, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com recodedecode Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair, I have two fantastic women who are going to talk about tech and politics. The first is Hillary Rosen, a Democratic political strategist and the managing director of SKD Knickerbocker. She was previously the CEO of the Recording Industry Association of America, where I met her 150 years ago. Hillary and I are here in Washington, D.C., and we're also joined from New York by Juliana Glover, a Republican consultant who has worked for politicians like George W. Bush, John McCain, and Rudy Giuliani. We're going to talk about this crazy election and what happens next, especially for tech and media. Hillary and Juliana, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you, Kara.
1: Great to be here. Good morning, guys. Good morning.
0: So there's a lot to talk about. Uh, we're going to focus on tech and media, obviously. But let's uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happened over the past four years in the Obama administration. There's been a lot. You both have worked and consulted with various tech companies and worked on all kinds of issues. And I just let's start with you, Juliana, what you think sort of the big issues have been over the past couple of years. Because I think it's pretty uh, clear that Obama has been the first really tech forward president compared to many, many others, although there's been lots of different initiatives over the years. But what do you think some of the key things that have happened and that have been very important for tech and media?
1: Um, I think the rise of search and the rise of AI and the rise of sort of this ubiquity in classrooms for interconnectedness. And Mm -hmm. And I think this president has been very, very good about talking particularly about the interconnectivity and the need for technology to be an economic driver and a leverage tool to ensure that children across the country have the same level of
2: access to great education. Mhm. Hillary, I think from a more political I agree with all that but just from a more political point of view I think that this would be kind of the the defining moment where the growth of the tech companies got a complete pass. Meaning meaning that the White House and the regulatory agencies consistently avoided doing anything that right. would have put any sort of a roadblock or chokehold or rules on the in place to limit the growth of these tech companies. And the reason why I think it matters is because – they went up against really significant institutional players. Sure, like cable companies, net neutrality. Like cable companies and telephone companies and entertainment companies and sort of a whole host of really entrenched industries. And Obama from the very beginning saw his base as very connected to the tech industry. Mm -hmm. And so I think as a matter of policy, you ended up with things like you know, net neutrality, which, which pushed back on the cable and, and phone companies on refusal to sort of limit, as Juliana talked about, search mm-hmm. or put consumer um, protections in search or those sorts of things. And so I do think that – and on the law enforcement side, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. um, the difference maybe with the Trump administration. But I think across the board, you saw kind of a, a … A pass for tech. … a partnership they viewed it as, and a pass for tech.
0: Juliana, what do you think of this? Do you think this is has been important? Because obviously these companies are not small shrinking violets. They're very wealthy companies. They're very powerful companies. They're among the most valuable companies in the world, from Apple to Google to Amazon.
1: In my opinion, I don't think that the sort of regulatory disposition from the Obama White House was something that arose out of sort of a decision not to, to necessarily regulate. I think it was more sort of an ambient understanding that These technologies are moving so very, very quickly, and they are some of the primary economic advances for our country writ large, and that the government, as a regulator, if they decide to step in, they're going to be regulating the technology by the time they actually put those rules in place that would have been hanging around for, you know, six, at the fastest, six, nine months, but, you know, more like 18 months to two years. And, you know, I think that there was a fundamental understanding at the Obama White House that, they're not going to be able to keep up with as quickly as all of these remarkable companies are innovating. So where they could, they sort of, you know, steered it where they were appropriate. But in terms of, of trying to set marketplaces or guidelines
2: where companies should stay, you know,
1: they they I think they fundamentally followed the rule that information
2: should be free. I agree with and, that. You know, I say they got a pass sort of without pejorative right. – View just, but although a lot
0: of people feel they got a pass in a negative way, Europe. There are clearly
2: some areas where people felt aggrieved and probably are aggrieved. But you know, I think the point Juliana makes is really, really, really important, which is that fundamentally, people inside government have just not been able to keep up and are outgunned uh, scientifically, technology-wise, just um, knowledge-wise of the marketplace. It's changed a little bit in terms of some of the stuff that the White House – technology office has done. But even that has been more directed at making government more efficient, not in being more aggressive on policy.
0: Right. Absolutely. All right. Let's go over some of the issues that have been over the past couple of years, because I think they're all going to be going forward, the same ones. And I, I will note that in Europe, uh, Marguerite Vestager and others have been much more aggressive on against Google, against Facebook, against Amazon, against all kinds of things. And at the same time, in Britain, they're being very aggressive um, in approving self-driving cars and drones and all kinds of regulations that are, have been been mucked up here in this country a little slower. But let's talk about sort of what the key issues of the past few years have been, because I think it will show how much it's going to continue to be an issue like net neutrality. Let's start with that one. Juliana, how do you feel th- that decision was made? It was obviously in the favor of internet companies to the chagrin of companies like Comcast and others. I want to look at a couple of things, net neutrality, sort of the new employment economy, the sharing economy, and then encryption and those things. And then in the next segment, we'll talk about where that's all going to go. In the Trump administration, but let's talk about net neutrality first. I mean, do you feel that that was the right decision, or do you, do you? How do you look at that decision and how it was made?
1: You know, I don't. I don't have a personal view necessarily on how this came down. I I do think that this took years to promulgate, and it was it's something that folks in these ish, these issue areas have been working on for a very very long time. I do think that as we look forward, and I know we're getting there in a minute, but I. I don't think you can talk about the fact that, you know, this administration came down on the side of the internet companies without a great deal of interest and fascination with how a candidate who believes, who doesn't believe in the power of eminent domain, the idea that owner rights trump all, Mm -hmm. excuse me there, is going to handle this going forward. I mean, obviously the, the telecom companies, anyone providing bandwidth, they own those pipes, shall we say? Yeah. And you know, I think it will be fascinating to see how this next president manages things that people own, right? And allowing for sort of free transportation or you know free access through those pipelines.
2: Hillary. Well, I think that's right. And and as I said earlier, I think that the Obama administration saw much of the online revolution, as it were, as fueling their candidacy, and. Net neutrality, ironically, and again, I don't have a dog in this fight and didn't have a a dog in this fight, although in full disclosure, my firm does do work for AT&T. But there was what I think there is a irony about the tech companies did not want the government to regulate anywhere Mm -hmm. in their space, but yet they did want the government to (laughs) insist that they get access to other people's space. Uh And so I do think that we see that kind of throughout the um, tech space. and, and I, I think going forward, that may change a little bit that you might not just get an automatic pass because of who you are. Having said that, there's no question that consumers have been on the side of net neutrality and where and global access and, and free information. And mm-hmm. so consistently the arguments have been framed as pro-consumer mm-hmm. as opposed to pro-industry. And I think when you are able to do that, and Juliana and I both do f- message framing for a living, mm-hmm. when you're able to do that and when you're able to mobilize in particular, you know, it's enormously helpful. Which I think they will continue to do as they move forward. Which they will have to continue to do as they move Don't
0: forward. Don't you want to watch your Game of Thrones freely without – Can I – let me them, throw right? a wrinkle. Sure. If, let me
1: throw a wrinkle into that. So, I mean, I'm, as you all mentioned, I'm up here in New York and um, – you know, as as a avid content consumer on my phone, you know, I do think that we are going to be watching this, you know, it, there's gonna, it's going to come to a head again, the uh, ubiquity and capability of our, our bandwidth options versus what we are trying to watch and see and hear on our phones every single day. I mean, as you all know, when you travel around, uh, around New York, in particular, one of these hyper concentrated environments, sometimes phones don't work so great. And we're going to see how that plays out. Um, whether it's sort of a a proliferation of other broadband providers or these private sector agreements between content providers and um, those offering bandwidth to see that we'll figure out on a sort of a bilateral basis what what will be permitted in the future. Because I I do think that this problem is not fixed. I think the Obama administration sort of, you know, they held the ball um, and crouched on this one. And, you know, I think that, People don't feel that this is remotely a completed conversation. No, I
0: think some of these services are going to like turbocharge themselves as people use these even more so and, and have multiple devices in the homes and things like that happening. And it'll be interesting to see who pays for them um and who who decides that's exactly right so let's move on to the new speaking of that because jobs was one of the biggest issues in this election and again we'll get to that part later but part of it was how the changing economy is happening with job classifications with the sharing economy with people that are on contract and you know each candidate and different candidates said different things at different times but it is clear that there's got to be a new reclassification of jobs and how employment Happens. Hillary, why don't you talk a little bit about that, what's happened? Again, they, it's another punting in a lot of ways because nothing really has gotten, even as these companies like Uber and many, many others, of course, the San Francisco area, I always say, is a you know, it's assisted living for millennials. You know, there's all this VC funded <laughs> do you like that? There's all these VC funded things that are going to change job classifications, but no one's done it. And I know Gavin Newsom and others in California are looking at this, but how do you look at it on a nationwide basis because we are becoming a nation of contractors?
2: Well, interestingly, we saw over the last two or three years a push to actually regulate more in this space Mm -hmm. from increases in the minimum wage, which the court just struck down, Mm -hmm. to the labor department that was starting to work on regulations on the sharing economy, to labor unions that had started to get very aggressive in this last campaign about trying to organize and push policymakers to force sharing economy companies to treat more of their uh, suppliers like employees. And I think that is going to be put on significant hold. Mm -hmm. But I I, I think there is increasing pressure from kind of old school work advocates on these companies. And I, I think what you'll see and what I've started to see is these companies start to find ways to develop their own rules around um, employee benefits and support and Mm -hmm. things like that without actually calling them employees. And that marketplace may end up being where we go. But I think had Hillary Clinton been elected president, this is probably one area where there would have been more activity in terms of work rules and other things that would have had a, a significant impact on the market.
1: Juliana. Yeah, I do feel as though going, as we went into the election, many of the sharing economy companies were really preparing for this specter or prospect of perhaps Bernie Sanders as chairman of health education, labor and pensions committee. Mm -hmm. Um, And that combined with what everyone expected was a Clinton administration where there would be labor union sentiments and concerns put front and center. You know, I, I think that after sort of these companies, many of them are, are tech companies, in California went so solidly for Clinton. You know, after they sort of comprehended the results of the the election, and then that, so the next sequential logical thought was, you know, the 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 independent contractor conversation just got much more open and fluid once it became clear that Donald Trump was going to be president and that the Senate, the Republicans were going to hold the Senate.
2: I do think that the courts may speak in this area, mm-hmm. and that. These companies are not totally off the hook. And then there will there's this other interesting dynamic that will take place with the progressive community who will not be silent mm-hmm. in a whole host of areas. Mm-hmm. That same community that was active trying to use the arm of government I think will try and use the arm of government for the loyal opposition, whether it's Senate Democrats like Elizabeth Warren that was pretty vocal in, Absolutely. Uh, in, in this area. So I don't think that these issues are are – over with Donald Trump as president, but I do think that some of the momentum has has stopped and that people have to be smart about how they pacify the real thoughtful desire of of their contractors to have fairness and equality and good working conditions with Well, Um, you know, I don't know if you know the
0: the statistics right now. I think 40 percent of millennials are in these contract jobs. It's it's a really – it's an enormous and growing number and at the same time shifting jobs four and five and six times. Um, These have been the trends over the last couple of years and as these companies, again, like Uber and Airbnb and there's all kinds of things that are related um, and Airbnb has a whole host of regulatory issues around housing too. um, But they're all part-time work in the part-time economy um, and how people think about work going forward.
2: It is. And it's interesting because a lot of those companies were depending on Obamacare, for instance, right. exactly. to give those part-time workers or contract workers health care. Right. I think that's going to be a big issue for this administration going forward. How are they going to replace what are really requirements for daily living from people um, without pulling back everything?
0: Right. All right. The last thing very quickly I want to talk about and then we'll get – in the next section, we're talking talk about where things are going in the Trump administration and the key issues is encryption, Obviously, Juliana, this has been this was a huge issue between the FBI, between especially Apple and uh, and tech companies. Where have we left it? Can you just sort of describe where you think the situation is right now? And then in our next segment, we'll talk about where it's going.
1: The encryption issue does feel as though it's been resolved, but not because government did anything. Um, it certainly had much more to do with just again this the function of exponential innovation and you know uh, encryption capabilities. Are so quickly advancing, and it is so crucially important for U.S. corporations to be able to provide devices and communications with the highest level of encryption. Mm-hmm. In the age of the hacker, um, the interesting rub is that you know when government has tried to had just tried to step in and stop this, you run the risk that the economic repercussions in the United States from not being able to sell these devices internationally because Huawei or ZTE. Yes maybe doing a better job of encrypting for their international clients, not necessarily their domestic clients, but their national clients, than you know various U.S. companies. And again, this is a, a classic example of government just by its nature not being able to keep up with the speed and capability of innovation in the private sector.
2: I think this is an area where you're going to see a lot of new activity. You know, uh, the nominee for Attorney General Jeff Sessions has been well on record as being very hard on companies that have, for instance, refused to provide backdoors to government mm-hmm. for access to data, he was very hard on Apple. Uh, he worked in the Senate and said that these tech companies shouldn't get a pass. Law and order was more important. Access for the FBI, et cetera. So, I think we saw in Donald Trump less of a reverence, yeah, for companies on this issue, and yeah. I think that going forward. There is going to be a a renewed debate around how much control companies should have versus government should have.
0: All right. We're going to get back to that when we get back from our break. We're going to take a short break now for a word from our sponsor. We'll be back with Hilary Rosen and Juliana Glover. And we're talking politics and tech and media. This show is brought to you by SoFi. And today I'm talking to Michael Malin, a member of SoFi's entrepreneur program. SoFi is a new kind of finance company pairing great service with low rates. The Entrepreneur Program is just one of its awesome member benefits, providing entrepreneurs with an opportunity to pause their student loans while they launch their businesses. We're here with Michael Malin from Stasis Labs. So what is Stasis Labs? You don't move anywhere? What is it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've uh, built a monitoring system that's uh, driven by the cloud. So it's a uh, more software-driven approach to uh, monitoring patients' vital signs.
0: And did student loans affect your decisions as an entrepreneur? Because if you're raising money and you don't have it and then you also owe money, it can be a real pressure on, on an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, had around $140,000 in student debt wow. um, and had been kind of paying my way through school for the last six years. The debt took a toll in terms of being able to finish in four years as well.
0: Right. So how did SoFi help you? Were you in the entrepreneur program, the one that put off the debt for a year?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was. It was fantastic. And I'm still very involved with them. They refinanced my debt and they were able to defer it um, actually for a year. So that was very instrumental, especially in the really bootstrappy days to be able to kind of allocate the, the limited amount that I could kind of take home just to, you know, live a meager lifestyle and not have to worry about paying off the debt.
0: Learn more about SoFi and student loan refinancing at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. We're here with Hillary Rosen and Juliana Glover talking about politics and tech in the era of Trump. We were talking about what the big issues have been in the past couple of years around encryption, around how jobs are are classified, and uh, net neutrality. Um, There's all kinds of issues for the Trump administration going forward from transportation and how we're going to regulate self-driving cars. Again, still on encryption, on privacy, on taxes – um, it's a really important time for tech and also for media. And there's tons of mergers happening. AT&T is trying to buy Time Warner. Uh, Verizon is in the midst of uh, buying Yahoo. And then there's all kinds of issues with um, hacking and other things like that. There's so many tech issues. and. I'm being kind when I'm saying this is not a tech president. Although he is a genius at Twitter, it's not someone who thinks a lot about where future tech is going. Juliana, why don't you talk a little bit about what you see the big issues for the Trump administration in in tech are? Because in the campaign, and again, he's changed a lot of his tune from a lot of his campaign statements. He seems to be taking them back every day. He was quite aggressive at tech companies, particularly Amazon and Apple uh, spent a lot of time insulting them and such. So, where do you imagine he's going to come out on some of the key issues and about these campaign comments that he made, which were pretty much all hostile
1: towards tech? Yes, I think imagine is the operative phrase there. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> as everyone saw, you know, yesterday, you know, one of the most really adamant statements uh, President-elect Trump had made, or and sometimes outrageous, perceived to be by many to be outrageous statements. Uh, during the campaign was his belief that he would go ahead and reinstitute a waterboarding aka torture mm-hmm. if he were elected president. That was something he repeated often. It was a applause line at his rallies on a daily if not, you know, multi-daily basis, basis. Yeah. basis. And he unwound that yesterday at the New York Times. He mm-hmm. said that he'd learn more information. You know, I think after talking to um General Mathis, he'd mm-hmm. figured out that, you know, a beer and a pack of cigarettes was more effective than waterboarding. Mm-hmm. So I, I take that for an indicator that we have no idea how he's <laughs> right. going to come down on yeah. issues where he's spoken on the campaign. And it's going to be a function of his advisors as to how he settle, you know, how he sort of ruminates and then settles on different policy proposals. And, you know, quite frankly, we don't know who his tech advisors are going to be. I, I mean, I can't I think even think Saf- of who they are. I just—that's the issue. I mean, I could well, think of a, he, a half or, a dozen Clinton well, people, but last week he met with—I um, think he met with Safra Katz. Mm-hmm. and then he met with I think Brad Smith of Microsoft. Sure. And we don't know why that happened, really. Um, you know, some speculation that Katz could be Commerce Secretary, mm-hmm. but we don't know who his most influential technology advisor is going to end up being. It's just. Delta of individuals that sort of exist in the conservative movement, or even outside the conservative movement, we just don't know who he's been around or who he would find to be compelling. Um, we do know that Jared Kushner's uh, brother has been active in Josh. the tech tech mm-hmm. sector, but sure. he's I think he's also been sort of arm's length from the campaign. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, we're all I think everybody who's thinking about these technology issues is triangulating and strategizing and trying to come up with sort of this range of policy proposals that a Trump administration could put in place. And it starts at a dartboard right yeah, now. I absolutely. mean absolutely. Yeah, I, know, I,
2: it, I think there <laughs> are a few things, though, to look at. First, we know that he has a lot of loyalty to Peter Thiel, mm-hmm. you know, a, ah, Peter. a famous libertarian. How could we leave him out? Someone who Kara knows well.
0: Um, <laughs> I don't, actually. and I know of him
2: well. Actually, I do know him well. Well, our listeners know of him well. Yes, yes. Yeah. And a famous libertarian, though, when it comes to sure. government. And on the other hand, the FCC transition team that the do. president-elect has put in place are filled with people who were sort of anti-net neutrality people. Yes, they are, um, and so pro-merger people. You yeah. know, and on the antitrust side, you have folks from uh, law firms that essentially have you know worked for the last you know twenty-five years to get mergers approved. And so, I do think that there's a a bunch of signals that they have have sent here about both what they're looking for in mergers, which is not much uh, enforcement, and what they are looking for on um, sort of telecom and other sorts of tech stuff may be leveling out a playing field a little bit to not advantage uh, tech companies quite as much. And then I think that we have this opposite issue, which I really believe that Democrats cannot be discounted in this conversation going forward. In particular, you're still going to need – 60 votes in the Senate to get things done. They're going to eliminate the filibuster rules for court nominees for the Supreme Court, but they're not going to eliminate it for everything else. So so those moderate Democrats or those progressive Democrats, depending on the issue, are still going to be very important for how things move forward. So there are going to be policy issues. They're not going to be able to just reverse something like net neutrality without – Democratic input. They're not going to be able to push through work rules or encryption or other kinds of issues without Democrats in the, in the Senate engaging on this. And so I do think that you'll see interesting coalitions being made, both industry interest and uh, ideological interest that may create some strange bedfellows on these issues.
0: So what do you think the key issues are going to be going forward? Because I don't imagine this – he will be pushing a lot of tech issues the way uh, President Obama had. I don't think that necessarily – although there are certain things that he's promised like jobs, which he's trying to take care of the infrastructure and other – initiatives. Um, But really, the future does rely on a lot of tech jobs. And that's where the jobs are in this economy and where the US has excelled in. Julian, what do you think the the key things he will be pushing in tech? I mean, I I, I do think he will pull away from attacking maybe some a company like Amazon quite as much, he'll, someone will say, oh, you know, people do like that prime. And he'll be like, oh, yes, they do. So I shall not, you know, this is a popular company with consumers. That's exactly how a decision could get made. But I don't think he'll be attacking them quite as vehemently, because it doesn't really work.
2: Well, in a, he's talked a lot about tax, tax for instance. Yeah. And, and tax is a policy driver. Right. And so he's for instance criticized Apple for not right. manufacturing enough at home. He's criticized most of the tech companies for keeping profits overseas and which he's and, promised to bring back. Which he's promised uh, or a to repa- allow them a, a to bring repatriation back repatriation yeah. rate and it looks like with the new congress that that might actually happen. So if those companies end up with a lot of cash in their pocket and distribute it as opposed to Investing in domestic manufacturing right. or in in domestic jobs, you know, they could be on the hot seat again.
0: Absolutely, I think probably if Apple opened a plant of some sort, it would go a long way. If they got the repatriation
1: of their we, cash, go ahead, go. Can we Julian. go back to the infrastructure question? Sure, absolutely. So yes, of course, this president has president elect has been very articulate on the infrastructure question, and there has been you know a lot of speculation that this is going to be an enormous enormous spending bill. And we are not sure how they're going to pay for it. Perhaps they'll pay for it with, you know, with bringing back this two trillion dollars worth of overseas profits that you know companies, U.S. companies around the world are holding. But the definition of infrastructure, I think, is crucial here um, as one thinks about technology. You know, I, I think that there's going to be a real opportunity to argue that bandwidth, telecom, that is infrastructure as yeah. well, and that could also be. Really, an opportunity to unleash tremendous growth there that will be truly impactful to the technology sector.
0: That's absolutely true. I agree with
1: that. But again,
0: when we get back to who in the Trump administration is going to be influential, you do have Peter. I think pretty much Peter, who he has investments in. You know, he's obviously a Facebook director. He's got investments in Palantir and Airbnb and all kinds of of uh, sharing economy companies.
2: Um, when you look at uh, the people that they've talked to, for instance. For Treasury Secretary, right. or for Commerce Department, mm-hmm. or for trade, and and I think Juliana would agree that who they're talking to about these jobs, as opposed to sort of the parade for for the media. But you know, Wilbur there Ross, there is a back entrance, Mister, S- you know, nineteenth century steel companies. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. we're we're not talking about yeah. you know the new economy at right. all when we're when we're thinking about these things when we're. We're talking about investment bankers at Treasury, you know, who, who may have some experience in financing tech, but we're not exactly talking about right, the most forward-looking uh, leaders here.
0: So, Juliana, the, the back entrance, is Eric Schmidt coming in through the garage? Is that what you're saying? Or? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised to see Eric
2: Schmidt coming in. Oh, he, I think
0: that they're taking meetings make...
1: with everybody.
0: Do you see, like, for example, Harold Ford has been mentioned as a tra- as a transportation secretary. I do believe the transportation secretary is a key appointment because of uh, regulation around self-driving cars and, and around drones and around all kinds of uh, fast-forward robotics and, and that, that all have to do with transportation. A lot have to do. Absolutely. Um, would you see anybody in that area that's going to be not from the old world?
2: Look, I think that if Harold Ford – takes this job if he's offered it don't. I don't know I mean his political career will be over he it's not that he wouldn't be a good transportation secretary mm-hmm. it's that he cannot sustain the pressure from his friends mm-hmm. if Trump starts enforcing on immigration or against Planned Parenthood or against LGBT rights or civil rights issues, like that is just going to be an untenable situation for somebody like Harold Ford to be in the Trump administration. I don't see this at all. But
1: wait, wait, Heather. You know, I, I agree that people who go into this administration could potentially be put in an untenable situation. But I do believe absolutely that somebody like Harold Ford, if he is at a point in his life where he can do this, and he thinks he can be helpful, he should go in, but he should have his resignation letter written as he goes in So <laughs> all um, Democrats and ready to walk, <laughs> right? And re- and just re- and and ready to walk because I do think that, you know, although, uh, you know, I was a very prominent Never Trumper, and I have, you know, I think that it's so vitally important that we give him an open mind and as much advice and support as we possibly can because he's just going to be too incredibly powerful to limit the circles of advisory services that are available to him.
2: You're right, except there are the realities of, you know, real people feeling very threatened by this president and a whole host of civil rights issues. And so being associated with him is just a dangerous front. But as we've learned this week, Donald Trump probably cares more about what the New York Times and its readers care about him than almost anybody. And Let's not ever forget that. that's yeah. a it's a significant way to influence the situation.
1: was you on and I've been joking all week on that point, which is although he's been bashing the media incessantly throughout his campaign and continues now, um, you know you're exactly right, Hillary. It is the New York Times, the New York Post, the papers that he's woken up and read every single day of his life that are the, going to be the most powerful in this next new world. And I think that that's potentially a, a great tool and a transparent tool in working with this president. It, he's. We don't expect that he's necessarily going to read uh, briefing books that are produced by, you know, hundreds of staffers in the White House. But we do know that he's going to wake up every morning and look at the New York Times. And if if different interests can communicate their issues that way, it's a clear tool to use. It's not, I'm not saying it's uncomplicated, but I think it's something that the entire world can get their, their head around is He's going to read The Times every day. All right, so old media
0: wins. We'll talk about that and more <laughs> when we get back with Hillary Rosen and Juliana Glover. We're talking politics and tech. Casper made a perfect mattress and sells it directly to consumers to save you money. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep service with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Shipping to both the U.S. and Canada is completely free, and there's a 100-day risk-free trial and return policy. If you don't love your Casper mattress, they'll pick it up and refund everything. These mattresses are made in America. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com recode and using the promo code recode. Stop paying the mattress industry's inflated prices. Go to casper.com R-E-C-O-D-E and use the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. Today's show is also sponsored by Oxford Road. Ever wonder how these ads on podcasts work? A startup pays a host like me to read a script about their disruptive product or service. We know you're choosing to listen, and that means you will probably, at the very least, give any product or service we mention serious consideration. But what if you were one of those startups who want to advertise on a podcast? Where do you start? That's where Oxford Road comes in. It's the leading advertising agency in consumer tech. Companies like Dollar Shave Club, MeUndies, Blue Apron, and more started with Oxford Road. Oxford Road engineers ads to perform. They buy media based on over 100 million dollars in performance data, and their world-class analytics and attribution methods give you confidence in every line of performance, just like digital. Go to oxfordroad.com/scale, set up a free analysis, and find out what it would cost you to test ads on a podcast. And maybe the next script I'll be reading will be yours. Go to OxfordRoad.com slash scale right now. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara. I had Stephen Dubner on my podcast, and he is a brainy guy. Don't freak out. He's a brainy guy who can explain big ideas in a simple way that even me, a knuckle-dragging person, could understand. So we talk about economics. We talk about Trump. We talk about how to create a book and podcast empire. It is all great stuff, and it is
2: free for you, the listeners.
0: You can find Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm here in Washington, and therefore I have to talk politics, and I dragged my old friend Hillary Rosen in, who is a Democratic consultant, and uh, Juliana Glover is calling in from New York City. She is a Republican consultant. I like to keep it even, Stephen. I don't have a Green Party person <laughs> here, but and I apologize. Um, but with some of the issues we were just talking about— were, That's why we lost. <laughs> because we don't have a Green Party— um, <laughs> media, big mergers, lots of them are going to happen. And I think most people feel in tech there's going to be a lot a lot of mergers happening, if not some IPOs going forward and things like that. There's a lot going to be a lot of activity in tech around finances. Let's talk a little bit about this administration's viewpoint of this. Now, Hillary, you had talked earlier that there's a lot of pro merger people here and you think these are going to sail through.
2: Well I, I think you can't have as much uh, money as you have now in the capital markets and not see a huge amount of consolidation right uh, Big companies have just so much money available to them. And so I think the deal market that we have seen active over the last couple of years will continue only it will continue much more unabated be you know, I think the Justice Department has is in litigation over five big mergers now uh, between the Justice Department and the FTC. And I just don't think we're going to see that as much in the Trump administration, although I do still think that the changing dynamic of mergers will not go back. And that is that companies need to define their consolidation in a frame of the public interest as opposed to the shareholder interest. I don't think we're ever going to go back Mm -hmm. because I think the populism of the day that fueled a Trump candidacy, that helped derail a Clinton candidacy, is not going back. And I think that the way that people think about big business, the way that people think about growth is really, really important for these companies' brands, not just so for framing, their- framing is framing, critical. Not just in how they're dealt with in the public policy sphere, but how they're dealt with in the marketplace. So I do think that there is a a significant amount of, of capital activity that we're going to see, but you know the AT and T Time Warner merger is a, a great example of completely upending. And in full disclosure, my company, as I said, works for AT and T in upending how we think about content and mm-hmm. how uh, we think about platforms. Right. And all of a sudden, these companies that have had really distinctive businesses—you're um, businesses, either a platform company or a content company. I think that distinction is going to go away.
1: Let's go back to the consumer question. So, assuming this president elect, the only way to communicate with him is going to be on the front page of the time of the New York Times or New York Post. Um, the storytelling around what big mergers are going to mean for consumers and voters, and where those are positioned, where they might end up costing um, middle America more of their hard-earned dollars. That's where I think you're going to see some real trepidation as to whether these big mergers are going to be able to go through. Absolutely, the disposition at the Department of Justice and the antitrust division is going to be proved to us that this is anti-competitive, not this is anti-competitive, it proved that it isn't, which is sort of how Democrats historically have come at sort of at the antitrust arena. But I, I'm not entirely sure that the merits, uh, you know, around whether there's vertical or hor- horizontal integration and mergers that are going to go introduced in the future and going on now, I, I don't think that that's going to have anything to do with whether this White House opposes or supports them. I think it's going to be entirely a communications function mm-hmm. as to whether this is, you know, as Hillary just said, what's the impact on consumers? And again, that will play out front page, major papers. Let's add the Washington Post, because I do think he'll be watching, reading the Washington Post when he's going to be in D.C.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, So in that regard, though, Europe opposite stance. You've got a right. very aggressive person in Marie Vestager and others in Europe where these companies don't sail through quite so easily and these mergers don't sail through. Google is still under continual watch by the Europeans. Does that stop them or, you know, if they get – they have had pretty much of a pass here in this country. Do you see that being th- that Europeans will become more aggressive?
2: I think that they may become more aggressive as we've seen kind of a populist right as opposed to a populist left taking on more power in Europe, I think they 'll end up with the same consequences. The other thing that we 'll see that we 've seen in Europe is an increased desire for more tax enforcement right, right. for all of that u s money in theory parked overseas not to go anywhere the e c wants to a piece of it get a piece of that the u k wants to get a piece of that um, so I do think that these companies have to have more of a potentially global outlook than they had, but it will start from this. Really uh, significant framing of how are, are individual workers going to benefit, individual consumers, and I think that will start to be more of a of a global problem. You know, let's face it; these jobs are not coming back. No, the ones that not. Donald Trump promised would all come back, mm-hmm. right? So, what's going to substitute for them? Where is growth going to to occur? Right. So, the more that this administration takes a hands off approach on business the more trouble Donald Trump is in when it Mm -hmm. comes to his Mm reelect. And so um, the more money that goes into CEO pay versus, you know, and consolidation and job cuts, the harder it is for him to feel and be successful. So I do think you have this sort of historic Republican establishment pull to let the marketplace work its will. And that is probably more the Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell right. congressional leave Republican, right. leave the marketplace alone. That is going to go up against the Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, these economic populists are angry for a reason and we have to address that. So, and so which way that goes and shakes out on the regulatory front is really an open question. So let's end on that talk about that issue because a lot of these uh, – one of the things that's sort of being
0: discussed in Silicon Valley a lot these days is uh, artificial intelligence. And the impact on jobs that a lot of these, what Hillary was saying is entirely right. These jobs, not just the manufacturing jobs, but real – the jobs that have been touted as the growth of the economy, they're also going away. Radiologists, for example, is a good example everybody always uses. We're not going to need radiologists in the future. There's hotel drones right now taking the place of people who are delivering food. theres It just goes on and on and on and a lot of the new developments at uh, you know self-driving cars. And I know, Juliana, you've consulted – Uh, on this issue quite a bit, Um, you know, where those are all going, where those are all job replacement technologies, pretty much all of them. You know, Uber, is same thing. Everyone's working on self-driving cars and and things like that. Why don't you talk a little bit about the impact of AI and does this administration understand the possible real contraction of jobs that could happen, Um, not just where it's happened typically in the Rust Belt, but everywhere pretty much?
1: I think... California entrepreneurs absolutely understand the potential of AI to completely transform how people work in coming years. Um, I don't think that there's a either a Washington elite or a Donald Trump advisory circle that understands how potentially quickly this is coming. If you look at the numbers on uh, just sort of people who make their money driving in some way, shape, or form you know, I, I believe that settles out at around three in 10 men, earn their livings behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. And if regulators and someday in the not too distant future decide that autonomous vehicles or quasi-autonomy are indeed safer than humans behind the wheel, and you see this, you know, the suddenly ubiquitous and inexpensive technology being downloaded into vehicles, that's going to be a great and enormous cultural and economic challenge for this country. And I I don't think policymakers are necessarily thinking about how you take a 50-year-old male or female who has been productively and happily employed throughout their life, making a contribution to their community, taking care of their children, making their mortgage, and suddenly they're replaced by a machine at a faster rate than anyone is is expecting – and how do you take that person and ensure that they have the you know dignity after moving into some sort of social support system the whole retraining question i think is also an area that we're going to have to inject into the you know the infrastructure debate and i think that and bandwidth have got to be part of the conversation of any sort of massive spending bill on on infrastructure that's upcoming and there will be a tremendous amount of education that needs to be done that this is coming quicker than anyone is is expecting.
2: Uh, so true. And Republicans have obviously always historically kind of fought retraining money. But, you know, Donald Trump so famously said on the campaign trail, mm-hmm. I love the non-educated voter. Mm-hmm. I love those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I want more of those voters. Mm-hmm. And what his advisors have since said in the analysis of the election was mm-hmm. people just don't want to be told that they have to go back to school to get a right. good job. Right? Right. And so, so – you know, this administration is gonna have to be careful right. about supporting these companies where that ends up being the only opportunity. It's like going back to school. And and there is this viewpoint, I think, by many that there are thousands of vacancies in tech, in, in tech and without people to fill them. And so this um let's say more progressive viewpoint of we need to figure out how to get more folks educated so that they can be more supported in the new economy. Has been so dismissed, right. if you will, by the Trump campaign mm-hmm. over the course of the last six months. But it's inevitably where they'll have to go. Well,
1: although they're facing, and, what and could he'll be a- go there. I think he'll go there happily. I mean, I think that I would agree. You know, once once a president elects, policy circles come to understand how quickly this is potentially potentially coming. Those are the voters that he cares most about. Those are the voters that put him in the White House. And, you know, just as he says, he doesn't, you know, it's the the atypical anti sort of usual conservative belief of we need to have Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security reform. Trump has opposed that. I think he's going to come out also in an unexpected way on how to manage the displacement that's going to occur as AI becomes more highly utilized across the country.
2: And my view is that he's going to end up with allies of Nancy Pelosi and Elizabeth so Warren he's back and will Schumer so he'll be more so he's than back Paul to being a Ryan and
0: Mitch McConnell. <laughs> that'll be interesting. So lastly, I want to end up because I know Hillary's got to get going on Twitter. What do you think about the power of Twitter with Donald Trump? He's obviously a savant at using the medium. What do you think about the impact of Twitter on the election and fake news and things like that?
2: Uh, Two thoughts on Twitter. One is that we just saw that Twitter announced that they were not going to provide a backdoor Mm -hmm. to the government for Mm -hmm. access to user data. And it'll be interesting to see if donald trump's favorite media <laughs> right will will end up feeling the um force of of law enforcement in what they do because he's promised more aggressive law enforcement there look i think that there is no going back i saw a poll nope. yesterday that said that 60% of americans want donald trump to shut his twitter Uh, a countdown because they think it's not a good way for a president to communicate. But that's just not going to happen. Right? Um, It's been too useful. I agree with that. Too useful, too too exciting for him. And I think we are in a new era of really... um, Communication. He was on YouTube the other day. I would say authentic communication because Mm -hmm. it is his voice, Mm -hmm. but just a huge media fact-checking problem because he is completely unabashed about lying. lying on Twitter and having his perspective repeated over and over and over again with fake news. I do think that if Facebook and Google and Twitter want to survive, they are going to have to deal with this problem. They there is accountability there. Absolutely. And so I I think that the steps that Facebook has taken are, are good so far. Google's done it on the advertising side, but I don't think it's going to be enough. They're going to have to invest in resources to address this problem.
0: Which is a very difficult uh, computing issue. Juliana, what do you think about the impact of Twitter?
1: You know, listening to Hillary, I just continue to be s- stunned by this fact that, yes, we live in a world where Donald Trump can communicate directly to voters, and he clearly values that tool. But I just – I think he, he values that tool. But not more than he values what the major papers say about him. Interesting, and that's how his relevance is playing out in, in the world. And it has been that has been how it has been for him his, his entire life. And I don't think that's going to change. So, yeah. um, although I, you know, there, I have a, a tremendous amount of concern about fake news and trolls, and you know, the the, the harassment and the really grotesque behavior that happens in so much social media. You know, I settle back on the belief that it's going to be a vibrant and free press that is going to thrive under this administration.
2: But this is, in every sense, the two sides of Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. right? That the unknown of Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. does he care more about the New York Times and what they say, or is really his success dependent on being able to effectively lie on Twitter. Right. So, you know, therein lies the excitement of the next four oh years. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wait till he gets on Snapchat.
1: Anyway, we'll see. Him <laughs> but, but, the- what, but what did he say at the Times yesterday? He, he, yesterday at the Times, he said – he was asked, how do you know you're going to be successful? He didn't say Twitter or voters. Mm-hmm. He said, when you all think I do a good job, and I don't mean as a conservative – I mean, when you think I do a good job, ah, well, um, and I'm definitely paraphrasing that, yeah, and perhaps bastardizing a bit, but it was where the media settles out on how he does a good job writ large, not in terms of imposing a, you know, a, a governing worldview or structure, but he wants to be said that he, in an ubiquitous and globally. Media recognized sense did a good job. Not enough likes is not good enough, then. Yeah, I don't, I, I think that that's, I, you know, I agree. Jazz hands.
0: Jazz hands. All right. Thank you so much, Hillary and Juliana. We talked a lot about politics, all kinds of things. It'll be very interesting going forward. We'll have to check in at the midterm time. Midterms. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having. Me. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with outgoing Defense Secretary Ash Carter, AOL co-founder Ted Leontes, and late-night TV host James Corden, just to name a few. All of those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday, and this week he has a great interview with Stephen Dubner of Freakonomics. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to our sponsors, Casper, SoFi, and Oxford Road. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.